Hello everyone, today is September 4th. This is our season finale, if you can even believe that. And if it's Friday, then this is the Dell. The latest news, the absolute latest news, you know, up until I was recording and able to release this. The latest news is that President Trump skipped visiting an American military cemetery in France because he didn't want to see dead losers who died during World War II. This is on top of the weird tweet the president sent out yesterday that included a wink emoji. He's discovered emojis. It only took him four years, and he's two months out from election day, and he's really up in his game. Has an American president ever tweeted a wink emoji before? This man has 50 million women accusing him of sexual misconduct. Just saying, this feels weird. Some are saying this is the final sign it's the end of the world. We can stop the end of the world on November 3rd. We have a really fantastic interview today. I speak with Dr. K. Chad Clay from the University of Georgia. He's a co-founder of the Human Rights Measurement Initiative. He's on today to talk to us about the U.S. failing in its promise to protect human rights. And probably most importantly, if there's anything we can do about it. This is another great interview. Take a listen. Hi, Chad. Thank you so much for coming on The Delve. How are you today? Doing okay. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I just want to get started with maybe you tell me a little bit about yourself and about the organization. So to start, I'm an associate professor of international affairs and the director for the Center for the Study of Global Issues, uh, the Globus Center at the University of Georgia. So I'm an academic for the most part in my day job, but I am also the co-founder and the civil and political rights metrics lead for the Human Rights Measurement Initiative, what we call HERMI for short, H-R-M-I. As an organization, our goal is to really provide cross-national comparable metrics on human rights practices for ultimately every country in the world on every internationally recognized human right. Now, we're not quite there yet, but that's, mm. that's the goal and that's what we're trying to do. One of the kind of ironic things, I guess, is the United States, when it comes to foreign policy, uses human rights as a bit of a talking point during negotiations, whether that's with China or Russia or North Korea. You know, you pick your country. And it actually turns out from your tracker that the United States has their failings as well. Absolutely. It's a long history for the United States to use uh, rights language and to portray itself uh, internationally as a paragon of human rights. But there's a number of ways in which for all the things the United States gets right as a democracy and as a state that has at least some rights embedded in its national constitution and in its sort of overall framework, the United States has never really been a avid, excited participant in the international human rights regime. You know, the United States doesn't ratify that many international human rights treaties. We haven't ratified the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, which really represents sort of half of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights framework. And we haven't ratified 
the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which makes us the only UN member state that hasn't ratified that document. We haven't ratified the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, which I believe places us among somewhere around five UN members that haven't ratified that document. So in a lot of ways, the United States, for all of its rights rhetoric, has always, from an international law perspective, looked like an outlier in terms of democracies and their participation in the international human rights regime. When we think about our human rights practices, that's long been reflected there as well. The truth of the matter is that the United States has never completely gone through the reckoning that it really has to go through with thinking about discrimination against Black people, discrimination against Latinx people, the treatment of Native American people. All of these things serve to significantly lower the U.S.'s scores on a lot of civil and political rights that I think most people tend to think the U.S. would be at the forefront of. While the current period is possibly a recent history low point in terms of U.S. human rights, a lot of these problems are not new. They're things that have existed in the sort of fabric of the way the United States treats human rights for the last 70 years. You mentioned a bit of the treaties that the United States is not a party to. I feel like some of the rhetoric that we hear from administrations is it's going to infringe on our sovereignty. Sure. Is that all of it or is there more to that? It's hard to say. I mean, certainly American independence and sovereignty are often the explanations given by politicians and legislators when they say they don't want to sign on to these kinds of things, right? When it came to the Convention on the Rights of the Child, a lot of the talking points at the time when it was really being debated were things like what effect ratifying that document would have on the tradition of homeschooling in the United States and whether it would put onerous requirements on people who would like to homeschool their children. Now, there's not much evidence for that, given that every other country in the world has ratified this and many others have homeschooling that operates just fine. Another part of the debate at that time was about whether it would limit the government's ability to try children as adults and whether it would allow the United States to carry out the death penalty on people who've committed crimes under the age of 18. Now, at this point, when we're talking, the Supreme Court has ruled that that's unconstitutional and that's not allowed anymore in the United States. But at the time this was being debated, that was one of these big issues, right? And those are both just issues of national sovereignty. Uh, Ultimately, it's the United States saying that we know better how to carry these things out within our borders than the rest of the international community. One of the problems I see with that in terms of sort of the hypocrisy of it is that we often want the rest of the international community to embrace the international human rights regime while we undermine it at home. Mm. And it's a really difficult thing. I think that the international human rights regime certainly has a lot of failings and there are a lot of weaknesses in its design, but many of those could have been overcome and still could be overcome, I think, if the United States was a more avid participant, if the United States through its both real and symbolic power behind the international human rights regime, but we've never really done it. And I think it's weakened the international human rights regime as a result. This has been a practice across administrations. So both Democratic and Republican administrations have been opposed to signing up to some of these treaties. Absolutely. And even if you look at things 
like I mentioned the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights earlier, the United States signed that treaty back when it first was opened up for signing under the Carter administration. But several Democratic administrations have passed since then that could have put their weight behind it. Ultimately, ratification in the United States, and this could be some of the issue with some of our ratification process, requires you know, approval by Congress. It requires Congress to actually vote to ratify that treaty. And the truth of the matter is, is that several presidents have come through. The topic of ratification has come up. And most of the time, they've chosen other legislative priorities, right? Because spending political capital on getting the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights ratified is political capital you maybe don't get to spend on, say, the Affordable Care Act or something sure. along those lines. And so most of the time, even presidents that are sort of interested and committed to the principles of those documents have just been unwilling to make that their sort of legislative mark rather than some other policy they really would like to see pushed through. Right now, I'm looking at the rights tracker, and I'm looking at the quality of life index that you have here. So it covers education, food, health, housing, and work. There's four grades, very bad, bad, fair, and good. Out of the five, only food is beyond bad. It's the only one that was graded fair. It's scary to look at this, especially when you look at housing, the housing marker and work, they're rated as very bad. Yeah. Now, I I think it's important to talk a little bit about how those indicators are measured. So our economic, social, and cultural rights metrics are designed by my fellow co-founder, Susan Randolph, as well as with her co-author, Sakiko Fukudopar and Tara Lawson-Rimmer. They designed these metrics a few years ago as part of the Social and Economic Rights Fulfillment Index. And the idea behind these data were that most of the data we have that covers things like housing, health, food, doesn't really take a human rights perspective on those data. It just sort of asks like, hey, what percentage of the population has significant or sufficient food as receiving sufficient caloric intake or something along those lines? But it doesn't think about whether or not we're achieving what a state is obligated to do under international law. So... An interesting facet of economic and social rights and international law is that I believe it's the second article of the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights says that states are expected to do what they can to the maximum of their available resources with an eye towards progressive realization towards achieving those rights. Wow. And what that means is that some countries are expected to do better on these things than other countries if they have more resources. And we're talking about a place like the United States you know, we're one of the wealthiest countries in the world. Which almost, you could say, has unlimited resources. Yeah, I mean, we... We find trillions of dollars for anything that we want to find it for. Absolutely. And if you look at the way that Susan goes about producing these metrics with her team, we have the resources in the United States to get 100% on all of this. We should be doing as well as anybody in the world has ever done on these rights. There's no reason we shouldn't be, but we're not. We're falling well short of what other countries with even less resources in the United States are achieving. And so that's where these really poor grades are coming in, is we're taking into account what the U.S. should be able to accomplish with the resources at its disposal and looking about just how far behind it it is from that mark. When you look at these gradings that the United States has, what 
other country is comparable to where we stand. I think this will be eye-opening to a lot of listeners. <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, if we're talking about quality of life, first, I would point out that if you just look at our overall quality of life indicator and you limit as you can on our rights tracker, that list to high-income countries, the United States comes in second to last among high-income countries in the world. The only country that finishes below the United States is Luxembourg. Mm -hmm. Above us are countries like Greece, Australia, Switzerland, Belgium, Italy, pretty much any high-income country that you can come up with outperforms the United States on quality of life overall. If we look at just who's comparable to the United States mark Mm -hmm. on these things, we're right alongside countries like If we look at the low and middle income assessment standard, which is not actually what you should look like, we look very similar to places like Thailand, Iran, Samoa, uh, Brazil are all sort of near the United States. If we look at the high income assessment standard, which is really the appropriate assessment standard to use Mm -hmm. when comparing the United States to other countries, right, we actually fall just below Mexico, which I think would surprise a lot of people given rhetoric in the United States about what the quality of life is like in Mexico compared to that in the United States. We're below Romania. We're below Bulgaria, right? Many countries. So our, so our peers and, and this index are Mexico and Iran. Yeah. um, (laughs) It it would seem so. Those are our classmates right now in this, this quality of life class. I I would definitely say much more Mexico than Iran because I I was using something of the wrong assessment standard to look at that one. But absolutely. And I think an important point to make there is keep in mind that that is taking into account the resources that the United States has. But what it tells you is that a place like Mexico, a place like Greece, is using the resources that it has much, much better in service of the people that live there than the United States is doing. That is incredible. Greece is coming out of the absolute depths of economic despair and Mexico where we have this really harsh rhetoric where we need to build a wall to keep people out and it turns out they might actually have a better quality of life in Mexico at least in terms of what Mexico could accomplish with the resources they have absolutely that's that's incredible i want to talk a little bit about so this data that we see here it's from 2017 Right. And it's almost scary to think what the slide may have been through these last three and a half years with the Trump administration. It is. It's hard to say at this point. And to be fair on the quality of life stuff, those indicators are pretty slow moving. Right. So it may be several years before we really see the full impact of what the last few years have been. And then take on top of that the pandemic. Absolutely, which is which may have accelerated this slide. I, I would absolutely anticipate it has, right? I mean, if we just look at things like unemployment numbers over the last year, evictions, evictions, and you know, right now our government is really struggling and failing to pass better assistance for the unemployed, right? Um, right? The amount of money we're giving unemployed people in the United States right now has fallen from the beginning of the pandemic. I absolutely think we're going to see serious impact from this pandemic worldwide, but it would not shock me if that impact was larger in the United States than we see probably in most places in the world. Scary, scary to think about. Next, I wanna talk a little bit about safety from the state. I think especially now with the racial justice protests happening and we're kind of seeing with clarity 
some of the abuse from the state. Can we talk a little bit about the safety from the state indicator? Absolutely. To just give you some background, when we talk about safety from the state uh, and the rights tracker, what we're really talking about are what in international law circles they would call physical integrity rights or personal integrity rights. These are the rights to be free from arbitrary physical coercion or force from your government, right? And so things like the right to be free from extrajudicial killing, so killing without sort of due process, the right to be free from the death penalty, the right to be free from torture or ill treatment, the right to be free from enforced disappearance, or the right to be free from political or arbitrary imprisonment. Would some of the police brutality fall under any of these? Absolutely. I mean, in most cases, almost all of them. But certainly our indicators for torture and treatment and extrajudicial execution would absolutely get at sort of police brutality, police violence against people. Out of all of these, the only one where the U.S. is not doing very bad or bad and not even good, it's just barely unfair, it's disappearance. So the state's not kidnapping. (laughs) So that's a good thing. But so, let's be clear, they're kidnapping some. Uh, we're, we're on that border between fair and bad, primarily due to the U.S.'s current treatment of immigrants at the border, refugees and asylum seekers. Because wow. in many, many cases, right, we're talking about uh, children and other people who are taken and imprisoned because they're viewed as crossing the border illegally. Their family don't know about their whereabouts. Discovering where they are, where they're being held is difficult. Communication with lawyers takes overly long time. And so Mm -hmm. even in those cases, sure, the government isn't outright kidnapping and disappearing people forever, but we are seeing poor score on enforced disappearance because we're essentially holding many people who are seen as having crossed the border illegally in what amounts to incommunicado detention for a period. Would there be a case of disappearance that falls outside of maybe like this immigration border topic? I mean, there's a few examples. I can't think of one right off the top of my head very recently. One, but that's one, the main driver of this. Oh, that's the absolute main driver of this. Wow. I mean, another example in recent memory was a few years ago, it was discovered that the Chicago Police Department was taking arrested people to essentially black sites, sites that were off the books where lawyers and others couldn't find them. uh, them, (laughs) uh, Yeah, this happened just a few years ago, taking them and interrogating them there for a period, right? It was usually a a relatively short period, but nevertheless, it was short form disappearance. Absolutely. It was terrifying. Yeah. That sounds similar to some of the tactics that the CIA was using over the course of the war on terrorism. Absolutely. I would argue that it bears a lot of resemblance and probably not entirely by accident. Um, The continued sort of militarization of our police forces tends to sort of, you know, reflect that things like that that are being used for national security purposes, police forces hear about, they pick up on it and they try to use them themselves. So the family of George Floyd has filed some type of complaint with the United Nations, I believe it was with the Human Rights Council, to kind of shed a little bit of light, even more so on the international stage, about police brutality in the United States. What does that look like? What effect would that have? 
or would it be very limited? I mean, is it more just like embarrassment? Yes. And that can be costly for countries. I don't want to undermine that as a possible approach. So if I understand the details of that case correctly, the Floyd family actually appealed to the working group of experts on people of African descent at the UN. I might be remembering that wrong. So correct. Oh, wow. Okay. But that's who they reached out to. And that could certainly, you know, bring some publicity effects at the international level and hopefully would at the very least ensure that these kinds of things come up when the United States comes up for universal periodic review with the Human Rights Council, which actually is happening in November. The U.S. was scheduled to actually go through universal periodic review, which happens every five years back in, I believe, in May. But it's going to be in November now because of delays related to COVID. It would be just absolutely shameful. Well, so the truth is that this is actually a topic that comes up at universal periodic review every time the U.S. has gone up. Oh, wow. It's a well-recognized issue in the international community that the United States engages in disproportionate police violence against Black people. It's just, it's a known international issue. This has come up and been brought up at Universal Periodic Review our previous two visits, and I am 100% sure it's going to come up again this year. The process, though, there are other procedures where the UN could wield more power in cases like this. Notably, if the United States had ratified the first optional protocol to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which gives the Human Rights Committee, which is the treaty body for the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, the ability to take petitions from people in the United States when they've exhausted all domestic remedies and to investigate reports of gross violations in a country if they hear reports of that and to, at the very least, act and discuss about whether or not the United States has violated its treaty commitments, right, which is a little bit Mm. stronger than what the Human Rights Council does, which really focuses on the Universal Declaration, which does not have the force of law, unlike the the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. But the United States, keeping with the theme of our earlier conversation, the United States hasn't ratified the first optional protocol. We have ratified the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, but not the first optional protocol. And so that committee doesn't have that power over the United States. So in many ways, there is a institutional structure by which the Floyd family could have really taken these complaints to a powerful treaty body at the United Nations, but it's cut off from U.S. citizens because the U.S. has refused to ratify that document. I keep asking this question just because I want to give listeners a bit of perspective. So the summary score for safety from the state is 4.4. Who are our peers on an international stage? Oof. Um, it seems so low. It is quite low. So for civil and political rights, which include both our metrics for safety from the state and empowerment rights, thus far, we've only collected data for 33 countries internationally. We're sort of growing that methodology, and we can talk about how we collect those data if you like later. But as it stands right now, if I just limit it to the high-income countries in our sample that exists currently, the United States is second to last in safety from the state amongst high-income countries in our sample. Uh, the only country that finishes below the United States is Saudi Arabia. And to be frank, our sort of uncertainty ban overlaps actually significantly with Saudi Arabia. So it would be difficult to say that those are huge, significant differences between those countries. What would be the country above us? It's Australia on high-income countries. And Australia oh. still... like is significantly higher than the United States. Uh. If I 
just look at our entire sample and sort of uh, including both high income and middle and low income countries, the United States falls right between the Democratic Republic of Congo and Mozambique. We essentially look to be almost equal to those two countries on safety from the state. So to be clear about what that means, our data do focus on the number of people affected, and it's not adjusted for population, right? So if we think about it in the United States context, what it's saying is a similar number of people have suffered from torture, ill treatment, extrajudicial killing, imprisonment, and the like in the United States that have suffered from those things in uh, Democratic Republic of Congo and Mozambique. This is in 2019, just last year. And so the idea is that each individual has the same human rights, and so each person counts. So we don't do anything mm-hmm. to sort of make it easier for countries with large populations to get away with sort of a larger number of violations. That's just to make clear to your listeners, this isn't sort of per capita kind of measure. It's not adjusted for population. But it's still, I think, incredibly striking that the United States falls that low on the scale. This isn't something that's new, something that has like slid over the last few years or since the Trump administration to status from 2019. This isn't something that started in 2017 and now in 2019, it's gotten so low. This is something that's been ongoing. Absolutely. It's something that is a longstanding problem in the United States. So if you look at our data, we have data for safety from the state from 2017 to the present. And based on sort of just the trend line for the United States on safety from the state over that time period, we can't really say that things are that different. There's a slight downward trend, it looks like, between 2017 to 2019, but it's not big. It's not significant enough to say it's real yet. The United States has been doing poorly for as long as the Human Rights Measurement Initiative has been collecting data. I remember looking at a colleague of mine Chris Ferris, who's a professor at the University of Michigan, some data he collected a few years ago where he had collected safety for the state data for basically every country in the world. And I want to say around that time, which would have been two or three years ago, the United States, I want to say, ranked around 130 out of 190 countries. So even if you include the entire population of countries in the world, which we don't currently have at Hermi, The United States falls well below the halfway point. We're in the bottom half of the world and possibly at this point in the bottom quarter. There's a saying, I'm not sure if you've heard it before, Chad. I'm not new to this. I'm true to this. I think that's a label that we could mark on the United States. They're not new to not providing safety from the state. They're true to disrespecting people's rights. Absolutely. And I mean... The truth of the matter is that it is all of these poor scores are highly, highly, highly connected to rampant discrimination and abuse against Black people, against Latinx people, and against Native Americans, among others, right? That's not to say those are the only people at risk for these violations, but one of the things we do at Hermie that that sort of other data projects haven't been able to do is sort of delve into who's at risk for abuse. And if you look at our people at risk data on safety from the state for the United States, if you look at, say, extrajudicial execution, 64% of our respondents told us that it's people of particular races are at risk for having that right violated. And when we asked them to tell us more about who they meant, it was particularly Black and Latinx people who were being killed by excessive police force, 
And then second on that list was people of particular ethnicities. Third on that list was immigrants, all sort of subjects that we've talked about earlier in our conversation. If you look at freedom from torture, 93% of our respondents said people with low social or economic status were particularly at risk for torture or ill treatment. But then 71% in the second slot are people of particular races, 71% are refugees and asylum seekers, 64% said immigrants, 64% said people of particular ethnicities. Once again, when we asked, who exactly are you talking about? You know, our respondents brought up police violence and violence Mm -hmm. within prisons against Black and Latinx people and against refugees and asylum seekers and other immigrants to the United States. So I think that these things are inextricably linked. And I think that because so much of the knowledge of what rights mean in the United States and how people enjoy rights are connected to, to be frank, the white experience in the United States, that when people hear this information, they find it shocking because so much of what they hear is simply reflective of the experience of white people in the United States. But when you get out of that framework, the truth of the matter is, is that many black people, many Latinx people, certainly immigrants to this country are living in a different America than white people are. I think that's a really profound thing to say. I'm a person of color and even I'm (laughs) like blown away. I'm like, what? I look at these, you know, if this data, I'm just like, why are we so low? You know, you hear stories and even growing up, you hear stories about really horrible things and you think, oh, maybe that's like a one-off. And I think what this data kind of provides is like, no, this isn't, these aren't one-off experiences. This is like a a lifetime experience for a lot of people of color. It's terrifying. I think like this would terrify most people easily. This is something that I've talked to frequently with the third co-founder. I mentioned Susan earlier. My other co-founder of Hermie is uh, Anne-Marie Brooke at Motu uh, Economic and Public Policy Research in New Zealand. And this is something she and I have talked about a lot over the years, is that this is actually one of the driving reasons we work on this project, Mm -hmm. is that I I do think that most of our engagement with human rights, both at the international level and at the domestic level within the United States, is with stories, right? It's You hear stories, and they're often horrible stories, stories of really terrible things happening to people that we would never hope would happen to anyone else. But we can often easily dismiss those stories as isolated incidents or as one bad story about one bad person often falls short of allowing us to see the systemic problems that often underlie those stories. And so we think, you know, I think those stories are crucial and valuable and probably more important to pushing change than data are by themselves. But I think when you combine Mm. them, that's when you really get something powerful and something unique because it allows you to say, here's a story about somebody who was truly affected by this problem. And here's evidence that that problem is real, it's widespread, and it's systemic. And this has actually been something I've been talking about a lot since the murder of George Floyd, because Mm. the murder of George Floyd was such an affront. It was such an obvious act of torture, ill treatment, and murder that I suspect this is true for a lot of us. A lot of people that I know that never talk about these issues and have never really expressed interest in these issues from the United States perspective suddenly 
we're speaking out about this event. They were like, this is wrong. I can't believe this happened. And pointing specifically to this event and saying this is wrong. And I right. sort of took it upon myself in a lot of those cases where I saw somebody do this, say like, it's great to hear you call this out for what it is. Now let mm. me show you that this isn't an isolated incident. Let's look at the data and talk about how this is just one incident among hundreds that happen every single year that just aren't caught on camera. They're not in your face every single time, but this is a real systemic problem in the U.S. And I think data really help us drive that home. One of the scores here on the empowerment index is participation in government. And of the three under empowerment and civil and political rights, there's assembly and association, opinion and expression, but participation in government is the lowest. Is that reflecting voters, like voter turnout? It's reflecting voter suppression to a large degree. So if you look- Let's talk about that. (laughs) Absolutely. It's the year to talk about it, I would say. It's the year to talk about it. So yes, the U.S. uh, performs most poorly among empowerment rights, uh, and our empowerment rights, right, are other civil and political rights that really aren't about that sort of physical coercion. So things like the right to assembly and association, the right to opinion and expression, the right to participate in government. I suspect, as just a side note to this, that all of these, but especially assembly and association and opinion and expression, are going to fall when we collect data for 2020. Just thinking about the government response to protests we've observed this year would suggest to me that we're going to see drops in the right to assembly and association, the right to opinion and expression next year. Nevertheless, thinking about the right to participate in government, if you look at who our respondents said was particularly at risk for violations of that right to participate in government, the number one choice chosen by 64% of our respondents was people of particular races. And if you mm. like dig into you know the qualitative responses of what they told us they meant by that, they told us that it was particularly Latinx people and African-American people who were subject to voter disenfranchisement in conservative states. And so a lot of this score is being generated by efforts to both disenfranchise people and make it more difficult for them to vote via you know all of the sort of tactics that everybody's worried about of reducing the number of polling stations, making it harder to get to the polls, making it harder to vote by mail, all of those issues. But also the problem of criminal disenfranchisement, which is, you know, in many states in the United States, felons are kept from voting for many, many years after they're out of prison. We're seeing this big battle in Florida on this exact thing. And the truth is, is this is another issue that the international human rights community has been calling out the United States for for a while. There have been reports by the Human Rights Committee, as I mentioned earlier, the treaty body for the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, that have for years have said that the U.S.'s efforts at criminal disenfranchisement far go beyond what's allowed in international law. That the United States, if it was going to take the vote for people who are convicted of crimes, That needs to be part of the sentencing decision. The judge needs to explain why this person doesn't deserve the vote. And that's the international standard for criminal disenfranchisement. But instead, the U.S. has these blanket limitations that, one, keep anybody in prison from voting, and two, keep many, 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 many people from voting for several years after they've served their terms. This is, you know, a huge international issue that has been called out many times before at the international level, but that we have only really started to talk about domestically in the last year or two. Why are we so in the dark about 
human rights here in America. What is happening <laughs> or what is not happening? <laughs> I think what is not happening is a great way to ask that question because my mm. number one answer, and this is going to be somewhat unsurprising coming from an academic, is that we lack human rights education in the United States. I learned about the U.S. Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights probably starting from the first day I set foot in a public school right. growing up. And the same's true of all of the students I have in my classes here at the University of Georgia now. They come through my classroom. They know at least the basics of the U.S. Constitution and our form of government. Most of them have never heard of Universal Declaration of Human Rights or of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. The international human rights regime is not taught to anyone really until they're in a class that is specifically on topics related to that mm -hmm. in college. So students just don't hear about these things until they're sitting in an introduction to international relations class, or in many cases, my human rights class, which means that you had to have opted in to right. that class very before specialized. you knew what it was, right? It becomes a very specialized form of knowledge. And Wow. I think the way that Americans, as a result of all this, the way Americans tend to think of human rights is they are things for other people to worry about right. elsewhere, right? <laughs> like, And for us to like judge other countries. Right, on. yeah. The U.S. doesn't have to worry about human rights. That's mm -hmm. Human rights aren't an American thing. They're a for everyone else. Right. They're what America's bringing to the world, right? Right. And we don't <laughs> focus on the fact that we sincerely, wholeheartedly need them here at home. And so I do think that a lot of this is the result of we simply don't engage in human rights education in the United States. And it's something that we should be teaching at a very early age. You know, one of the most popular debates in the United States over many presidential elections for years has been, mm -hmm. is healthcare a human right? Which from an international human rights perspective is an insane question. Of course it's right. a human right. All humans have the right to the highest attainable standard of health written right there in the ICESER, the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights. It's also written right into the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which no less an American than Eleanor Roosevelt played a huge part in writing. And yet right. we still have this debate here as to whether Americans are entitled to health. It's remarkable how disconnected from the sort of global rights conversation the American domestic political conversation is. And I, I really think that if somebody gave me sort of the magic wand of what's like the thing you would change really quick, it would be a really hard decision because I've got a million of them. But one of them <laughs> near the top of the list would be educating Americans about human rights from a very early age. I would second, third, fourth, fifth that. Absolutely. I just found all of this out since researching for this episode. And that's way, way too long. I wish I would have known about this stuff sooner. I wish all Americans had known about all of this sooner. It's such eye-opening material. I agree. You know, I went through it myself. I went through college. I was the first person in my family to ever go to college. And because I was good at school, I just sort of assumed I would be a medical doctor because that seemed like somebody that helped somebody. That was sort of the route I thought I was going to take. And I majored in chemistry as an undergrad. And so I never took a human rights related class until I was a master's student, to be honest, on a lark because of my involvement in the 2004 presidential election. My friend Wes Alford suggested to me like, hey, you should try out political science. I think you might like it. And <laughs> I did. 
and I fell in love with it. But I had graduated college and worked other jobs. I had taught high school and done other things before I went back to this master's program and suddenly discovered that all of this was out there, right? And that's having gone through that myself and seeing the change that learning about human rights made in my worldview and in my perspective and the way I viewed things is really what has convinced me that we need this so much, right? Because I mean, human rights and education about human rights changed my life, obviously, given what I do for a living. But I think it could change everyone's lives. And it's something we just don't do enough of. Probably since the beginning of the United States, we've just been kind of complacent on this issue. And now we see this like awakening of civic action and activism. Does that give you hope that maybe we could see some broad improvements in the human rights situation here at home? It absolutely does. I mean, I'm one, I would say I'm an internal optimist in most ways for all of the not so happy stories I've been sharing with you today. The reason I do this work is because I think things can get better. And part of the motivation behind Hermi is really to try to use these data to motivate a race to the top internationally, right? States are always competing. Governments are always competing over who has the best economic growth, who can have the lowest unemployment rates and the highest GDP. We don't have those kinds of numbers for human rights, or we haven't until now. And so the idea behind this project in a lot of ways is that we want to produce data that motivates states to beat other states on human rights, not on just development. We hope that we're doing it in such a way that this is useful for journalists and human rights advocates and human rights lawyers to use those data in those ways. Obviously, I think things can get better. And I do think that seeing the way that the protests emerged following the murder of George Floyd and the kinds of activism we've seen over the last four years even are all inspiring. I think they all make me believe that the U.S. could do better and that we are, we have the potential to improve. I do see a couple of pitfalls to that though. And I think they're things that we have to always keep in mind. So the first pitfall is that everybody needs to vote in November. Uh, and, and you hear that everyone, yeah, everybody everyone. needs to vote. Like every person <laughs> needs to vote period. Period. And that's step one, but it's only step one because as our conversation is said over and over today, no matter who gets elected in November, these problems are still going to be there when they're sworn in in January. It's not going to matter who's sitting in the White House, there's still going to be rampant discrimination in the United States. There's still going to be horrible problems at the border. And winning an election is not enough for those things to change. It's going to require continued pressure and advocacy from Americans across the board to push our government to make change for the better. And so winning an election is just the first step. It's not the last. And I think, you know, if you look at sort of the history recent history of elections. I do think that movements have a tendency to sort of slow down and get quieter when there's turnover at the presidency level, right? And so there was like loud advocacy against the Bush administration and its use of torture and extrajudicial killing abroad. And then in 2008, Barack Obama wins. And don't get me wrong, there were still lots of strong advocacy during the Obama administration. But 
the Obama administration continued to carry out a large number of extrajudicial killings via drone strikes all around the world. And the loud, outspoken advocacy that we saw during the Bush administration against those actions was much Mm -hmm. quieter during the Obama administration. And I do think it's because we have a tendency to think that, oh, well, the person I wanted to win won, so we won, and it's over. Right. So we can kind of like look away. We all let off the gas, and we find ourselves in 2016 with President Donald Trump. If anything motivates people to not let their feet off the gas after they inevitably go vote this November, it should be that we don't want to be where we are right now again in eight years. How can our listeners find out more about your organization? We've got a great website at humanrightsmeasurement.org that gives you a lot of information about us and about how we do what we do and who we are. You can also just go directly to the Rights Tracker and look at the data at rightstracker.org. It's all one word. And you can find me at uh, kchadclay.com if you just want to learn more about me and what I do. I think that this material is so important. The data is so eye-opening. And I would really, really just encourage everyone, check out humanrightsmeasurement.org. Check out, check out the tracker, the Rights Tracker. Check it out and you'll be blown away. And I can't even put in words what I've just only recently discovered that America has been doing for, for decades. Yeah, any last words? <laughs> no, just, you know, I hope everybody votes in November and let's all try to learn a little bit more about human rights and do what we can to see rights fulfilled worldwide. Awesome. Dr. K. Chad Clay, co-founder of the Human Rights Measurement Initiative. Thanks for for stopping by the Dell today. Thank you so much for having me. You know, last week I announced a special Monday edition to cover the Republican National Convention. We skipped it. Yeah, it, it was a lot. Here's a sample. America, it's all on the line. President Trump believes in you. He emancipates and lifts you up to live your American dream. You are capable, you are qualified, you are powerful, and you have the ability to choose your life and determine your destiny. Don't let the Democrats take you for granted. Don't let them step on you. Don't let them destroy your families, your lives, and your future. Don't let them kill future generations because they told you and brainwashed you and fed you lies that you weren't good enough. Like my parents, you can achieve your American dream. You can be that shining example to the world. Manifest and be the change in this country that you dream, that you hope, that you believe in. Stand for an American president who is fearless, who believes in you, and who loves this country and will fight for her. President Trump is the leader who will rebuild the promise of America and ensure that every citizen can realize their American dream. Ladies and gentlemen, leaders and fighters for freedom and liberty and the American dream, the best is yet to come. uplifting passionate i know i told you it was a lot but there's more i am very very proud to be the nominee of the republican party 
President Trump knows he inherited the first generation of Americans who couldn't promise their children a better life than their own. The party had moved from liberal to radical. This new Democratic Party wasn't just for higher taxes. Now they were for open borders, against our police, and against our God-given rights. At no time before have voters faced a clearer choice between two parties, two visions, two philosophies, or two agendas. The radical left doesn't really want better policing. They don't really care about making the justice system fairer. What they want is no policing. Biden is a Trojan horse for socialism. He's a Trojan horse with Bernie, AOC, Pelosi, Black Lives Matter, and his party's entire left wing. They want to defund the police and take away your Second Amendment rights. They want free health care for illegal immigrants. Yet they offer no protection at all for unborn Americans. I recognize that my dad's communication style is not to everyone's taste. And I know that his tweets can feel a bit unfiltered. But the results, the results speak for themselves. He makes promises and he keeps them. He is transparent and we certainly know what he's thinking. He is transparent and we definitely know what he's thinking. You can grab anyone by the... So in summary, it sucked. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's our special edition review of the RNC. I just read an article on HuffPost about humans wanting to touch other humans again. If you miss your grandparents, hell, if you miss your neighbor, register to vote. Request that ballot and vote this man out. And you can do that all at thedelfpodcast.com. That article is not all about grandparents, by the way. This is our season finale, and we're going to take a much-needed break. Thank you to everyone who has worked so hard during season one. You guys are the best. I'm eternally grateful. To all of our listeners, have a happy Labor Day, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. This is The Delph.